few weeks ago, we did a little topic on what awaits us and some of the things that were contained in that. What awaits us had to do with more of the immediate future, period of time just kind of around the corner. And so this morning we might touch a little bit on that kind of idea again, what awaits us, but not so much immediately around the next corner, but in terms of a little bit beyond that. And I'm going to present uh, quite a bit of scripture. I find sometimes we talk about the scriptures on and on and on. We talk about them, but why don't we just sometimes just read them? Why don't we just read them together and allow the scriptures to speak for themselves? And so that's what we propose to do this morning in the time we have together. Also, last week I mentioned right at the end, just kind of in passing, the idea that there's coming a time, I believe, when the veil that separates between the spiritual and the, um, and, and the natural realm would be removed. Now, when I say that, I don't know exactly what that is. I don't know exactly what all that means. See, I think what we find ourselves, do you ever find when you have these uh, little gaps and missing, you know, they talk about the missing link, missing link. Uh, but it's amazing how that the evolutionists have, what they have done with the missing links is amazing. <laughs> they have filled in those missing areas where the evidence really doesn't support the conclusions that they have arrived at. So. Basically, the evidence that is hasn't been discovered yet is referred to as missing links. So evolutionary theory is that those links are there. They're absolutely there to justify the conclusions that are arrived at, but they're missing. But my goodness, you can take a little piece of a bone here and a skull and a tooth over here and weave that all together and they'll have a picture, actually diagrams, of what these people look like and so forth. So um, there's this natural realm and then there's the spiritual realm. And I believe that there's a period of time where this, there's coming a time when that veil will be lifted. But the idea of missing length or information, I think is really important that we not try to fill things in when we don't know what the answers are. I think we should just keep ourselves, like there are certain things we know, there's certain information that's, we can, uh, that we can be influenced by and we can say this is true and this we know but then there's there are these other things that we don't know exactly and we have questions about because if you make a mistake if you're doing an investigation and you fill in an unknown and you just provide information in there to satisfy yourself then that's going to throw you off and you're going to be misled every time no matter what you're doing if you're troubleshooting anything you can't put in, just because you don't know the answer, you can't insert one. So I don't want to do that this morning. I don't even want to come close to trying to do that. At the same time, we don't want to avoid subjects because we don't know everything about that subject. So there's a healthy kind of um, questioning, I think. At the same time as we have that, there's an enormous amount, an amazing amount of information that is very solid. And that's the kind of information we want to be influenced by. I've always been impressed in Luke as Luke begins his gospel. And he, he talks and he says, for example, many, he says, many have taken hand to draw up an account 
concerning the matters which have been borne out among us. And he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth, his miraculous birth, his life and ministry, his death and resurrection. And, and so he's saying many have undertook to draw up an account. He said uh, concerning all these matters, even as we have received this information, he said, from those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And then he said, it seemed good to me also to, uh, he said, because I followed these things from the very beginning. This is Luke. I followed these things from the very beginning. He's writing to a man named Theophilus who appears to be a civil magistrate of some kind. Again, a little confusion exactly who was Theophilus, but it appears as if he's a man that holds a high office, perhaps a civil magistrate. And Luke is writing to him to give him an account. This is Luke's gospel. But but he says, I'm, I'm writing these things. I'm very familiar with them. And he said, I'm writing them to you so that you might know the certainty of those things in which you have been instructed. In other words, I want you to be well grounded in factual information. I don't want you just to believe things that uh, uh, that don't come on the basis of hard evidence. I want to present to you an account of these events, these wonderful events that I actually know and I have investigated thoroughly and I want you to give I want to give you and offer you something that you can really sink your teeth into, stand on, rest on and be assured of its veracity. This is the way we like to approach the scriptures as we approach them. So I come as we think in terms then of what is up ahead, not just the few events that are around the next corner, but in terms of uh, beyond that, and thinking in terms of the return of Messiah Jesus and some of the events that will occur at his return, including how we are impacted by his return and how we are changed and how our physical bodies will change, what kind of change they'll undergo. And how that relates to this idea of the veil, uh, that which separates between the spiritual reality and the natural being removed. It's an unveiling that will occur then. And that's the way in which I personally see this idea of veil being removed. I mean, there's always a sense in which a veil is removed whenever you come to see truth on something. There's a kind of veil that is moved. But I'm not really referencing that so much as I am this idea of that which separates between the spiritual realm and the natural realm. And when that is removed, what will that be like? So I begin with you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the apostle writing to the church in Corinth, and he said uh, someone, he, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And... He's talking to them about uh, that we will experience a physical resurrection as well. And he says, someone will say, how are the dead raised up? How does this happen? How are the dead raised up and with what kind of body do they come? That's a good question. This is uh, today would be that's Brother Wayne who left us last year. This would be his birthday today and if he was still here sitting over here in the back row having put all the songbooks out early when he came in he loved to do that 
And so he'd come in early on Sunday morning, you remember. And, and so he'd come in and he put all the books out. And he loved to do that. This would be his 79th birthday if he was still here. And of course, he left us last year. So we think about all these things. And so he said, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? He talks about this a little bit. And then he comes down to about the 43rd verse of chapter 15. And he talks about the way in which we are buried, which the body is buried. And he uses the analogy of burial of the body because this is the kind of idea that is best, best illustrates the truth of planting and harvesting. And the seed that you planted dies, and then what comes up is not the same as what was buried, but it is based on what was buried, but it's different than what was buried. But the idea that what was buried has to die first. So he uses this analogy, and he doesn't use the, and I want to get carried away with this, but he doesn't use the incineration of the body as a type that illustrates truth. I don't need to say any more. Well, not right now. But he talks about burial of the body. So he says it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it's raised in power, it is sown in a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Spiritual. What's this spiritual body like? So it's raised a spiritual body. He said there's a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, there's a spiritual body that the scriptures talk about. This is what I'm re- referencing and going ahead and talking about. I believe there's coming a period of time when this veil that separates between the natural and the spiritual will be moved. Removed be able to see in both realms, be able to function in both realms. He says, uh, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam was a life-giving spirit. He said, but not the spiritual first, but the natural afterwards, the spiritual. He said, the first man was of the earth. His body was made of the earth. It was earthy. The second man was the Lord from heaven, talking about Jesus of Nazareth. So when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was born with a body like ours. But at the resurrection, his body is completely changed, and yet it bears the signs of his natural body or earthy body. It bears the marks and the signs of it. But it's a spiritual body now. He goes on and says, such the earthy man, such also the earthy ones. And such the heavenly man, such also the heavenly ones. And so there's a sense in which the earthy man produces natural bodies. But there's another parallel, and that is that the spiritual man or the heavenly man produces spiritual bodies, heavenly bodies. And he says, and according as we bore the image of the earthy man in our natural body, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. This is the time, I believe, when that veil is going to be removed. Then he continues and says um, in verse 50 that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, that what is being prepared for us, he's saying, what is being prepared for us 
as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, that our natural bodies cannot inherit that, can't live in that, couldn't function in that. There has to be a a change, there has to be a transformation in order to live in that which is being prepared. So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So there's coming a state, there's coming a period of time when everything is made new, that it will be incorruptible, unchanging. It's, there's coming an eternal state. And the natural flesh and blood can't inherit that. Now he says something that's really fascinating. Well, it's all fascinating. But he says, behold, I speak a mystery to you. You know, we know what that is. He's saying, um, this is something that has been revealed to me as a special messenger and apostle. This is something that has been revealed to me. And you remember that period of revelation to the apostle began after his meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he went out into the desert and wilderness for a number of years, perhaps three. And he had uh, divinely revealed revelation from the Lord himself. Again, there's some mystery about this. But we know enough to be confident that this is exactly what happened to him. And he had special revelation from the Lord Jesus. Not just on the road to Damascus, but then after his sight was recovered and he went out, he was given special revelation. And these are mysteries. These, in other words, these are things that you can't see them until they are revealed. So he says, I'm going to declare or speak this revelation to you, this mystery to you. And here it is. We shall not all die, fall asleep in physical death. We shall not all fall asleep But he said, we shall all be changed. He said, in a moment, in the glance of an eye, how long does it take just to, in that kind of period of time, he said, um, the twinkle of an eye, the glance of an eye. And then he associates this moment with um, what he calls the last trumpet. The last trumpet. Now he's going to write something along these lines in First Thessalonians too. So he said, at the last trumpet, for a trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, in other words, with resurrected bodies, and we shall all be changed. Those who are alive at that moment, there will be believers on the earth who will be alive. And they, of course, their family or those who have died in their family, their loved ones, talking about believers now, not unbelievers, but believers. They have died and their bodies have been buried. But when they died, their spirit and soul went to be with the Lord. But the bodies were buried. But he's talking about the resurrection of the body. So he says there's coming a moment. It's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye or the glance of the eye. And there will be uh, many who will be alive on the earth at that moment when that happens, when this happens. But he said there will be a trumpet that will sound. And he said the dead should be raised incorruptible, in other words, with 
incorruptible, transformed, resurrected bodies. And he'll tell us what those bodies are going to be like. He said, we'll all be changed. We're just going to all be changed. He said for this uh, corruptible, in other words, this body that is subject to decay and corruption and aging and illness and things of that nature, this corruptible must put on incorruption. There has to be a transformation of it. This is really important. It's not just that we receive another body. It's that this body is transformed. This body is transformed. And it goes from, it's transformed so that what was corruptible must put on incorruption. And he said this mortal must put on immortality. Well, what's immortality? Immortal is, this is a body that will live forever. It's eternal. Now, when this happens, this is, this is going to happen at the same time as there will be others living on the earth who are unchanged by any of this. And yet for those who are transformed and changed, this veil that separates between the spiritual and the natural is going to be removed. The parallel passage, the similar passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he writes uh, to the church in, churches in Thessalonica, he said, uh, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout and uh, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. He said, the dead in Christ, those who have died, bodies have been buried, they shall rise first. So the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, can I just use a little example? Brent and I were remembering earlier this morning that we're coming up to about a year's time since we said temporary goodbye to Wayne Rains and he said his goodbye to us. We said our temporary goodbye to him. And he left us. He left us with a lot of questions. Some of those questions we still have. Some maybe not so much as we had then, but we still have some. And that's okay. He is writing about just such a situation as this. Because you see, when this moment happens, supposing this moment were to happen today, there's, there's a sense in Scripture of that these events begin to happen as a thief, as a thief comes in the night, which is the idea of suddenly and unexpectedly. And also the idea in Scripture is advanced that these all ca- there's coming events, they all cast shadows. And there are some events that are described in such a way that you'd say none of this could take anyone by surprise because it happens with tremendous fanfare. But there are other events that happen just like this one, which presents the idea that just in a moment, in the glance of an eye, at the last trump. So what it would be in that, if that would happen right now, today, is that our brother Wayne, his body, would be raised up first. First. His body would be raised up first. Then we who are alive will all be changed and transformed. In First Thessalonians, he said, again, I'm, I'm going to go back to this. The Lord descends with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. He says, then those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up in clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we ever be with the Lord. So there's a meeting of the Lord that he is describing, and this meeting of the Lord is in the air. 
And yet the dead, the body of those who have died, whose spirit soul has gone to be with the Lord, there's a reuniting, if you like, of the spirit soul with the body which is completely transformed and resurrected and raises up first. And then we are changed, those who are alive are changed, and we all rise to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we ever be with the Lord. Now, there's different opinions about exactly when this happens in terms of other events. I find, though, sometimes we can get so bogged down in the kinds of things that are controversial and maybe we don't know everything about that we're hesitant to talk about the things that we do know. Let's talk about the things that are clear. Let's talk about the things we do know. Now, the event itself is an absolute. It's very easy to understand. Say, well, I don't know know everything about it, and I still have questions about this event. You will have questions about this event until it happens. Don't worry about it. Ask the Lord for illumination. Ask Him for revelation. Sometimes the way He works with you is He'll... He'll give you a, do like the Apostle Paul, behold, I show unto you a mystery. In other words, just an unveiling of a truth. No one has the uh, full information, exact, absolute full information on some of the unknown elements of these things. No one has that. But the tendency of teachers is to pretend that they do. And then to try to get as many people as possible to follow them. Because their livelihood depends upon it. You say, are you sure you want to say that about teachers? Well, that's a tendency that has to be resisted. Now in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. It hasn't been revealed what we shall be. This is John who's writing this, and he said, But we know that when he shall be revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll be like him. When he is revealed, we'll be like him. He's talking about the same events the Apostle Paul has just written about. It's entirely possible that the Apostle Paul has some revelation on some of this, that perhaps John did not have the same revelation on. We don't know these things. But John writes under the anointing. What we do know is that as they wrote, they wrote under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And what John is saying is that when the Lord is revealed, and he will be revealed at these events that Paul has written about, he said that we will be like him and we'll see him as he really is. This is the unveiling. This is the removing of the veil between the spiritual and the natural. So to see him as he really is. And so we have this information provided to us that when Jesus rose from the dead with a resurrected body, it was flesh body. And he described it as flesh and bone. He said, I'm not a spirit. In other words, I'm, what he's saying is I'm not an intangible substance. I'm not, I'm not something that just appears to be but doesn't actually exist. <laughs> I'm not an apparition. Uh, I'm not a, a cloud that's flowing through the room here. I am real. I am as real 
to you as I was before the crucifixion. Reach out and touch me. Look at my hands. right? Look at my side. Look at my feet. Reach out and touch me. Do you have anything to eat here? Do you have anything to eat here? And they brought out something they had. And he ate it there in front of them. Why did he do these things? He did those things, obviously, because he is convincing them that he is absolutely real. Like tangible, real. Flesh and bone as you see that I have, he said. The point is, we will be like him. But we won't be like him until we see him at that moment. Not until then. You say, well, can't we be like him now? In a degree, yes. By degree, yes. But not completely and fully. Not with regard to the resurrected or glorified body. Now, the other thing that we notice about him is is not only could he, he, he said uh, that he is flesh and bone, but now to me, and, and again, this is just, this is my, I don't find evidence of blood. I'm just saying I don't find evidence of the blood. Now, I know if I read respected um, commentaries on this, they talk about he had a flesh and blood body. Like, I don't know. I don't know that there's blood. And I'll, I've, if he were to say, <laughs> flesh and blood as you see that I have, then I would say he's a flesh and blood body. But he said, flesh and bone as you see that I have. To me, it's easy to see that there's can be a life that supports the glorified or resurrected body that's not blood, but it's spirit. And yet the body can be as real and as tangible, more real and more tangible than ours are. The scripture says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And there's the shedding of blood. And it was necessary for Messiah to be born with a flesh and blood body like we have. But his blood was drained from him at Calvary. Again, I'm willing, I'm very willing to stand back and say, okay, uh, someone thinks a little different than that on it. That's fine. I'll just share. See, we have to, in certain things, we have to give one another liberty. I'm not willing to give unrestricted liberty because I don't think the truth allows us to do that. But there are some things that we don't have the final. I just don't see evidence of blood. But I see evidence of the body being flesh and bone and spirit. Okay, so then the other thing is, he what he did is he would uh, they would be in the room and they would be, you know, commiserating with each other in a room and and fear of what was happening and doors all barred and shut. And suddenly he's right there with them. And there's nothing said in the scripture that he knocked on the door and they opened the door. None of this happened. He just is there with them. He suddenly he's there. How does that happen? When he was with the men going to uh, Emmaus and he stopped and had supper with them and he broke the bread. And as he broke the bread, he was recognized by them. And when he's recognized by them and he has hands and he breaks the bread, which is physical bread, he walks along with them on the road. They could, you know, bump into him while they're walking. They can listen to him talk. They talk to him. And yet suddenly as he breaks the bread, they recognize who he is. Suddenly he's, he's not there. 
So there's an element then to, you can be seen, he's seen, and then he's unseen. Oh, but he's in Jerusalem and he's seen, but then he's unseen. And do you know how long that went on? For 40 days. That went on for 40 days. Can we see that there's a veil that doesn't exist? How long would it take him then to move from, let's say, Emmaus to Jerusalem? Did he have to walk back to Jerusalem? No. No, he didn't have to walk back to Jerusalem. He said he would meet them in Galilee. Well, he met them in Galilee. Did he have to walk up to Galilee? No. See, he can be here absolutely real and tangible and flesh and bone and eat bread and be in Galilee in a nanosecond. I mean, I believe that's what the evidence is. That means then that the laws of time and space, um, he's not being governed by those laws. He's not limited by those. That's why I talked about this whole idea of traveling throughout the universe and the idea of propulsion. You know, you've got to have propulsion to be able to travel. Well, you see, this completely negates all that problem. It negates this problem. Okay, so Revelations chapter 19. Let me just read. I'm going to read quite a bit of the scripture, but I believe there's a, there's a, it ties in with the things we've talked about. It talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, is this marriage supper of the Lamb, then, that is being described in Revelation 19, is this what happens subsequent to our meeting with the Lord in the air? Is this, is this then what happens? It says, And I heard as the, uh, as the sound of a great multitude and as the sound of many waters and as the sound of strong thunders saying, Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. John writing this, Let us be glad and rejoice. We will give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has prepared herself. Okay, so this marriage supper of the Lamb is described. And that could well be immediate consequence, result after this Lord descending from heaven, meeting the Lord in the air, uh, the resurrection of the bodies of the saints, the transformation of the bodies of those believers alive at that moment. Then he goes on in this revel in, the, in Revelation chapter 19, and John writing, he said, "I saw heaven opened." What is, see there? I saw heaven opened. Well, to see heaven opened is a veil has been taken away. To see heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he sitting on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now judgment is coming here. This is talking about judgment. In his eyes, describing... Now, this description is very different. This description is very different of the Messiah Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And a lot of the difference here has to do with uh, symbolic language. But you see, you can have symbolic language, but you can also have actual literal events at the same time. One does not negate the other. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. Why would he say that? That's what he saw because heaven was opened. 
His eyes were like, doesn't say his eyes were a flame of fire. His eyes are likened or likened to its simile, right? It's simile compared to, his eyes are compared to a flame of fire. Have you ever noticed in scripture that fire has to do with judgment? Fire has to do with judgment. I touched on this a few moments ago, but I find within me an aversion to cremating our loved ones. I find an aversion, strong revulsion to it. And I find I'm not alone, and I find that most of our brothers and sisters who have preceded us had the very same revulsion to it. And I find in this 20 and 21st century an acceptance of something by the Lord's people that I think we should have an intuitive resistance to. Why is there an acceptance of those things that we should resist? Like intuitively, you don't even need to have a, a great Bible study on it, I think, to have a sense in your own spirit that there's something wrong with this. Fire has to do with judgment. It does. You watch and you'll see it. So his eyes were like a flame of fire. This has to do, of course, with the judging, the judgment of Messiah. And on his head many crowns, and he had a name written, one that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a garment dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies in heaven followed him on white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Well, see, it's not literally a sword going out of his mouth. It's that his word is sharper than a two-edged sword. And it rightly divides to the division of soul and spirit. It's his word. He commands and it happens. He governs by fiat. But in the um, language of Revelation, the symbolic language of Revelation, he said his mouth, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword so that with it he should strike the nations or judge the nations. See, this is the idea of judgment. And fire is always associated with judgment. He will shepherd them with a rod of iron and he treads the wine, pre- the wine press of the wine of the anger and the wrath of Almighty God. This is the time of judgment. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then in the 20th chapter of Revelation, we come to this, he talks about a thousand years, this millennial reign. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the abyss, a great chain in his hand. And he sees all these things because heaven is opened. And it's open to see the realm of the spiritual realm is opened. It says he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the abyss and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years should be fulfilled. Well, you see, you still have nations. You still have nations in the earth. But there's a judgment here. Satan is bound for a thousand years during this period of messianic rule and reign for 1,000 years. But after that thousand years, he will be released. You say, well, what does the, those members of the church who have been raised with bodies like unto the 
body that Messiah has. What will they do during that period of time? They will rule and reign with him. But after the thousand years, it says that he would be released for a short time. He says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast nor his image, who had received, nor had received his mark on their foreheads, nor in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Remember how the Apostle Paul would say, don't you know that we will judge angels? Remember how he said that? You should be able to resolve disputes among yourselves, he said. Don't you know that we will judge angels? See, he's touching on these things. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. The second death has no authority over these they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign, here it is, and will reign with him a thousand years. With bodies like unto his. With ability to travel like he does. And yet be very real and can be touched. And can eat food and all these different things. He says when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison. He'll go out to deceive the nations. The nations still exist. There are still nations in the earth during all of this period of time. Then after this, he talks, John talks about the great white throne judgment. And he says, I saw a great white throne and him sitting on it from whose face the earth and heavens and heaven fled away. A place was not found for them. And I saw the dead, the small and the great stand before God. The books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now, this is a different resurrection of the dead. He says the sea gave up the dead in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead in them. And each one of them was judged according to their works. This is not a good judgment to be a part of. No. This is the judgment of those who were not raised when the Lord returned to the air and when they heard the trump of God and the archangel shouting. This is later. Each one of them was judged according to their works. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone was not found having been written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. These are all events. And all these events relate to that which the Apostle Paul was writing about when he said, how will the dead be raised? With what kind of body will they have? And he talks about the return of Messiah. And when he returns, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he really is. That there will be this great meeting in the air. There will be a married supper of the Lamb. There will be a return of Messiah as judge to the earth. And his appearance will be awesome. And during this period of a thousand year messianic reign, those who have been raised and are like him will rule with him, rule and reign with him. During this period of time, Satan will be bound. 
The false prophet has already been disposed of. Satan will be bound and will be released from his bondage at the end of the thousand year period for a short time to deceive the nations again. In Second Peter, now and I'm just going to come to a close with this this morning with you. But in Second Peter, I believe Peter now is, is writing about events that will occur after the millennial reign. After the millennial reign. At the very end. And these are very, very momentous events. And again, notice fire. Notice fire. Beloved, I now write this letter, the second letter to you, in which I stir up your pure mind by reminder to remember the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior by us the apostles. Knowing that this there will come in the last days scoffers walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this is hidden from them by their willing it, that heavens were of old and the earth out of water and through water being held together by the word of God, through which the world that then was being flooded by water perished. He's talking about the flood, the great flood, the flood in Noah's time, and how that the world was destroyed during that period of time. But it was destroyed by water, and then God said he would never destroy the world, the earth, by water again. And the sign of that, you know, is the rainbow. So there's a covenant. I will never destroy the earth again by water. And here's my sign of that, the rainbow. But now Peter is writing about another destruction that's coming at the end, at the very end. But the present heavens and earth being kept in store by the same word are being kept for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men that this present order is being reserved or kept to be destroyed by fire. It will be destroyed by fire. Fire is always used in judgment. Do you want to use something and have something that is a sign of judgment be applied to your body at the end of your journey before your loved ones lay you away? for the resurrection of the just. I think not. I think not. Again, the present heavens and earth are being kept in store by the same word. They're being kept for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But beloved, let not this one thing be hidden from you. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He doesn't reckon time the way we do. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but is long-suffering toward us, not purposing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, but the day of the Lord is not just one day. It's a period of time. And so even as it comes kind of unexpectedly and as a thief comes. There are many moments during it that are not uh, unheralded. In other words, they're very visible. He says, during which or in which the heavens 
This is the universe. This is the stars. This is the universe. This is all of it. All of it. All of it. Sun, moon, stars, planets, constellations. How many trillion stars did we speculate? All of it. The earth itself. He said the heavens will pass away with a rushing noise. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. The kind of heat that we can't even imagine. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. And the earth and the works in it will be burned up. Now to be secure during this, you have to know that a veil has been removed. And you're not governed by this realm. I I think as I was contemplating some of these things, I, I, I could see Daniel you know, in the fiery furnace. And there's, no, there's a fourth man. There's a fourth man. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're going to be in this conflagration. I'm just saying that there is protection in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the veil has been removed. But this is what's going to happen to the natural order. So he said again, the heavens will pass away with a rushing noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. And the earth and the works in it will be burned up. Burned up. Purified by fire. He said, then all these things being about to be dissolved, what sort ought you to be in holy behavior and godliness? I mean, there isn't anything that we're familiar with that will not be dissolved. It's all, it will all be dissolved. This is at the very end of the millennial reign. Again, what sort ought you to be in holy behavior and godliness, looking for and rushing the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens being on fire will melt away and the elements will melt, burning with heat. But, but, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's the reason for the resurrected immortal bodies because flesh and blood cannot inhabit this this new order, this new realm. New heavens, new universe, new earth, new planet earth wherein, uh, he said, righteousness dwells. This is what's coming. And this, is, this adds uh, some substance and some meaning to the idea of what awaits us. It goes beyond that theme and goes further, what awaits us. And it also talks a little bit, I think, adds a little bit light, more light in terms of this idea of veil and veil being removed.